Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. I'm Jessica Millar, one of the new Behind the Knife Education Fellows and a PGY4 General Surgery Resident at the University of Michigan. Well, it's that time of year again when medical students and senior residents are carefully crafting their residency and fellowship applications. The process can be a bit daunting, and there's been a lot of changes to the process over the past few years. In order to help our wonderful medical student listeners navigate the process, we here at PTK have put together a small mini-series to help you dominate the match. In this series, we will go through the application process, the ever-dreaded personal statement, interviewing tips, especially virtually this year, and ranking. Look out for these future episodes as we move through this year's application cycle. And while the series will be primarily focused on medical students applying to surgical residency, we hope senior residents applying for fellowship will find some useful information in them as well. Okay, that's enough for me. Let me introduce our wonderful guest for today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Hughes, endocrine surgeon and general surgery residency program director at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for being here and offering up your expertise. Okay, so let's jump right in with the nuts and bolts of this year's application cycle. Dr. Hughes, can you go through the timeline for this year's application cycle? Sure. Thanks for having us. Um, so the U.S. application uh, typically opens on June 8th. Uh, it's 2022 this year. Uh, and that allows the student to go on and uh, start entering in their information on uh, the ERAS application. Again, this year, the uh, ERAS has a supplemental application, which is optional for students to complete. Uh, generally, most students probably should complete this because many of the programs are asking for the supplemental uh, ERAS application, and that opens on August 1st uh, of this year. Uh, so students can start working on the regular ERAS application uh, before they start doing the supplemental ERAS application, but they should complete both of them. Um, on September 7th, uh, the residency applicants can submit their applications uh, to the uh, programs uh, starting at 9 a.m., and then the supplemental ERAS application closes on September 16th. So you want to make sure you get both of those done uh, because residency programs can start having access to the ERAS applications on September 28th of this year. Lots of important dates. We'll be sure to include all of those in the show notes for this episode as well. The supplementary application is something that's new within the past few years. Dr. Hughes, can you talk a little bit more about it? Right. So the supplemental application um, is new for general surgery uh, as of last year. Um, some other programs like otolaryngology and OB uh, uh, gynecology have been using this for a couple of years. Uh, the intention of this is to allow applicants to highlight uh, parts of their application that they feel is most important to them. Um, so there's uh, basically another application and they can highlight uh, different experiences. Those could be uh, clinical care, it could be volunteerism, it could be global health, it could be research. Uh, there's many different categories that they can include. Uh, they uh, enter in a description of the experience, the length of time uh, they had the experience, um, and uh, uh, programs can see those as kind of 
like the highlights of their application. Those experiences also go in the regular ERAS application, but the supplemental just highlights those particular areas. Yeah, you bring up a good point. There is already an experiences section on the ERAS application. So how is the supplementary application different or should students include the same experiences? I guess, in other words, what should students write about in addition to or that's different from their ERAS application on their supplementary application? Right. I I would consider the standard ERAS application as more of a laundry list of different experiences um, that the student has had, whereas the supplemental ERAS application is really highlighting the uh, four to five most important experiences that they've had. Applicants can kind of almost generate a little bit of a theme during the supplemental ERAS application. Uh, So you should include uh, at least everything you include in the supplemental ERAS application in the regular application as well. That's super helpful. And does every student need to complete the supplementary application, or is it something that's just a bonus? It is optional for students. Um, Programs uh, can also opt in or opt out of the supplemental ERAS application. The majority of programs are are opting in, Um, and the majority of programs would like to see the supplemental ERAS application. Uh, So I I would highly encourage every applicant to do that. There's there's no reason why you wouldn't want a program to know more about you, and the supplemental ERAS application gives you a great opportunity to do so. Great. So you definitely want to make sure you're submitting the supplemental ERAS application and that you're including experiences that you want to highlight in addition to those you've already included on your ERAS application. Okay, moving on. Something else that's a little bit new to general surgery, at least it was new last year, is preference signaling. And I know we have a lot of students that have questions about how to use these preference signals in a way that's going to benefit them the most. Dr. Hughes, can you talk about how preference signaling worked last year and how many signals students get? Right. The number of signals varies from different specialties. For general surgery, uh, each student gets five signals. Uh, The purpose of these signals is basically to allow applicants to notify programs that they're uh, most highly interested in before the interviews go out. The five signals that students can use, uh, they can uh, typically use them on any programs they're most interested in. Last year, the recommendation was to not use a signal for your home institution, so the place you're currently at medical school. Um, This year, uh, they say you can use your signal for your home institution. I personally recommend um, each applicant talk to their own institution about whether they want them to use their signals at the institution uh, or save those for five other programs. There's definitely a strategy when it comes to figuring out where to send your preference signals. And you bring up a great point about talking to your home institution and potentially saving a signal for another program. What about programs where students have completed away rotations or sub-eyes? Should students send signals to these programs as well or potentially save a signal for another program? Uh, That's also a great question and still a little bit of an unknown. Um, The recommendations on the supplemental ERAS site for general surgery is that you can use the signal both for your home institution and for programs that you went to as an away rotation. Um, Again, I would encourage applicants to uh, kind of talk to uh, the program that they did an away rotation uh, and and really see if they need to use the signal. As a program director myself, if a student comes to an away rotation here, uh, that's an obvious signal that they are interested in the program and they don't necessarily need to use one of the uh, supplemental ERAS signals. One question I've gotten a lot from students is whether or not to send signals to programs that are considered high tier or highly competitive. The concern is that these highly competitive programs may receive a lot of signals from a lot of students. So would it be better to save a signal or should students still send signals if they are really interested in these programs? 
the whole concept of saving signals for programs that you're more competitive for uh, versus those programs that are uh, really kind of a reach for some applicants uh, is still debatable. Um, I, I personally think that the students should use the signals for programs they're most interested in, and that's it. Um, there, there's no sense in trying to uh, kind of gamify or second guess what the program is thinking about you and whether you should use the signal for that program. Pick the programs you're most interested in and go ahead and single, signal them. Last question that I think is on everyone's mind. Will signaling or not signaling a program affect how a student is ranked by that program? Uh, the intention of the signaling is, is only to be used for interview uh, invitations. Um, it's generally not uh, supposed to be used to generate the rank list. The rank list is generated based off the applicant's um, um, kind of background. Obviously, uh, the interviews have taken place after that, so the interviews are one of the most important parts of generating that rank list. That was a lot of helpful information. Let's move on to interview invites. I remember this being a huge source of anxiety when I was applying for residency, and you had to be glued to your phone so that way then you didn't miss an interview invitation. Most of my classmates and myself even had family members and significant others logging into our emails just to make sure we didn't miss an invite. Reason being was interview spots used to fill up in a matter of minutes, and I myself missed out on a few interview opportunities because of it. What are programs doing differently this year to help resolve this? Uh, Yeah, I I hear you. It was highly anxiety-provoking, and it probably was not the best system in the world because uh, you were glued to your phone. Some some students were on clinical rotations. They had to leave the OR so they could go respond to a, an email invite. Last year, um, most general surgery programs agreed to release uh, their first interview invites on a single day, uh, which was uh, in October last year. Most of the general surgery programs have also committed to releasing the first interview dates on a single day, which will be October 26th this year. Uh, The intention is that all the programs will send out their interview invites on that day so that the majority of applicants can just keep an eye out on their emails on October 26th and have about 48 hours to respond to those uh, 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 interview invites uh, to confirm the interviews. There will be some more interviews that will come out later on, obviously, uh, if the programs don't fill all their interview spots. Now, you said most programs are participating in this, but not all programs are participating? That's right. So some applicants may get some interview invites before the October 26th uh, national release date. And giving students 48 hours to respond, does that mean the number of interview spots a program extends will match the actual number of interview slots they have? That's exactly right. Um, Of the programs that are uh, uh, kind of adhering to the national recommendations, uh, they will only send out the number of invitation spots they have available. If uh, the interview uh, invitees don't uh, respond and uh, fill that spot, they will release that to someone else after the 48-hour period or whatever length of time the program specifies. Moving on to everyone's favorite, step one. Something new for both students and program directors this year is step one being pass-fail. There will still be a fair number of students applying with a numeric step one score, but we're expecting to see more students applying this year without a step one score. How are programs planning to accommodate for this, and how will this affect the application of students applying without a numeric Step 1 score? That's a great question. The the Step 1 moving to pass-fail was a phase-in. So in the applicant pool this year, we have some people that have taken Step 1 and have a numerical score. Uh, There's uh, probably going to be a pretty significant population of applicants that just have a pass-fail score. 
Um, I can't speak for every program, but I imagine that most of the programs are just going to consider pass or fail for step one uh, and not consider numerical score in the majority of the applications. It's just a more fair way to uh, kind of apply the uh, step one score to all applicants. That does mean, however, that step two is a uh, standardized score that can be compared between applicants. Um, so some programs have uh, suggested that step two has increased its importance when uh, step one is now pass fail. I've had a lot of students reach out to me because they've either taken step two but haven't gotten their scores back yet, or they're due to take step two soon but may not have their scores back in time for when applications are due. How would you coach students in this situation? I think most programs would like to see a step two uh, score or a step two completion um, uh, before interviewing, but we understand that's not logistically possible for some people. Uh, the majority of programs uh, will require a step one and step two score uh, before uh, the match. Um, so that's a requirement that many programs have. And I'd encourage applicants to go and look at the website for each of the programs to see what the stipulations are for step two. We've talked a lot about deadlines, signals, test scores, but let's spend some time just talking about the ERAS application itself. I'm sure a lot of our medical student listeners have been spending countless hours filling out the various sections of the ERAS application and pouring all sorts of personal information into it, trying to craft the best application possible. The section that probably requires the greatest effort, though, is the experiences section, mostly because it's just this broad, open-ended section, and most students aren't sure what to include. Dr. Hughes, you've read through a ton of applications. What type of experiences do you think students should include in this section of their ERAS application? Should they include previous work experiences, volunteering, research? What would you recommend? Um, I think all those are fair game. Um, you know, as a program director, we like to see that uh, applicants have had some kind of clinical experience that could be uh, in the in the realm of uh, volunteerism, uh, working as a student-run clinic, uh, anything that's a meaningful um, experience and uh, shows their willingness and uh, kind of capability to perform clinical care. Uh, we also like to see a pretty broad level of experiences, things like uh, global health, uh, volunteerism, uh, research, um, outreach, um, any of those things that uh, students can kind of include on their application, uh, they should. Um, a one-day uh, visit to, um, I don't know, some, some volunteer um, society is probably not as important as uh, a weekly kind of experience over a several-month period. I know during medical school, it can be hard to build up a ton of these experiences. You're studying really hard, you're on long clinical rotations. So should students only list experiences that they've had in medical school or are undergraduate gap year experiences also fair game to list on your ERAS application? Um, I think the medical school experiences are going to be more important. Um, if you had a, a really in-depth experience uh, during uh, uh, undergrad, um, especially if it's medically related, I think you could include that. Uh, a lot of students these days have done some type of research during undergrad uh, or have had some other kind of clinical job during undergrad. Uh, including that is, is uh, meaningful, I think. For each experience, there's a description box where students can elaborate more on each of the experiences they list. Again, this is a broad, open-ended section with not much direction. How detailed should students be in that description box? Do program directors even read through them? How helpful are they, and how much should students include? Yeah, yeah we definitely read through it. Um, it it's hard to know what the experience is, 
is without some description. Uh, the description should include the level of um, responsibility the student had uh, with that experience, the time spent, and kind of what the output of that was. So if it was a research experience, was there a presentation, was there a publication that came out of it? Uh, if it was a volunteer uh, opportunity, do they have some leadership ability or leadership role in that particular thing? Kind of describing the the depth and the, the kind of outcome of the experience is important. Something else that I wanted to jump in and highlight is the hobbies and interests section of the ERAS application. I would highly encourage all students to spend some time filling out this section of your application. It's a great section to list all of your experiences that may not fit into the experiences section, you know, the usual research and volunteering, but are still important to you. I listed all of my biggest hobbies at the time, which included dancing, swimming, and I was surprised to find that these were the topics I got asked the most about during the interview trail. They're great conversation starters and a way for you and your interviewer to possibly connect on a more personal level. Dr. Hughes, what do you think? If there are hobbies or interests that students have, should they be sure to include those in their application as well? Uh, absolutely. Um, you, you know, it's, it's funny, the hobby section is at the very, very end of your ERAS application. Um, and it's highly visible because um, your hobbies are there and then there's a huge blank part of the application before it gets into the dean's letter and the letter recommendation. So it is a, a nice um, kind of conversation starter during the interviews. Uh, it helps to kind of um, describe you as a normal person outside of work. Um, so I highly encourage people to include those um, as long as you feel comfortable talking about that particular hobby. I really enjoyed getting to talk about my hobbies during my interview. So I'm super glad that I included those in my application as well. All right, Dr. Hughes, we've crafted this beautiful ERAS application. We've painstakingly worked through listing and describing all of our experiences. We've even filled out the supplemental application. Now it's time to select which programs to send it to, except there are a lot of different residency programs throughout the country. Most students may be familiar with the top tier programs or programs within their region, but what resources are out there to help students research and identify programs they may be interested in and should send their applications to? Uh, that's a great question. And it, it is highly individualistic uh, based on many, many factors. Uh, the applicant may have some geographic location they want to be in. Uh, they, they may be couples matching and they may need to go to a particular uh, place because of the, the partner that they're matching with. Um, there's a lot of different places to find information. The program website is probably a really great one. It lets you kind of shop around with what's available at that particular institution. Uh, you can learn about the residents that are currently there. Uh, you can learn where the residents uh, that graduated from that program uh, went into fellowship and sometimes even where they're working uh, currently. Social media is a nice way to kind of browse through different programs. Uh, many programs are putting um, some information out on social medias uh, in the form of videos or even uh, contacts uh, with some of the residents. Uh, Doximity has a nice uh, residency navigator that you can use to um, uh, kind of shop around through different programs. And then the American Medical Association has the FRIDA website. Uh, FRIDA um, has a um, kind of outline that all the different programs use. Uh, you can go in and see uh, the size of the program, uh, different attributes of, of people that match to that particular program. Uh, so that's a really nice uh, site as well. And then finally, some of the programs are having um, some informational sessions leading up to interviews. Uh, sometimes these are recordings. Uh, sometimes you can find these on the program websites. Uh, sometimes these are live web webinars put on by the residents and the faculty at the different institutions. Last thing before we wrap this episode up. I know you've got a lot of numbers regarding residency spots, interviews, and ranking for us, Dr. Hughes. Let's hear them. 
you know, across the nation, there's uh, about 340 different surgery programs. Uh, last year, there were 1,622 categorical spots, uh, and all but three of those programs filled through the match last year. Um, so the categorical positions are still relatively competitive, uh, but the good news is that the majority of applicants uh, did find a spot that they were happy with uh, through the match. When you look at overall numbers, uh, the average number of applications that, are, that were put out for general surgery was 70. That number is higher in um, students that come from a, a foreign medical school. Uh, they tend to be a little bit lower for applicants coming from a U.S. medical school. Uh, each program gets about a thousand applications. And I, I typically counsel students there, there needs to be an equation in order to match. You typically need to interview at about 12 to 13 places, uh, put at least 12 to 13 places on your rank list. And that generally um, associates with about a 95% match rate. So those are the numbers that you're looking for. And each applicant should really, really take a close look at their competitiveness on paper and then either, you know, turn up or turn down the number of applications that they put out there. Those are some super helpful numbers. I know a lot of these numbers have changed over the past few years with interviews switching to a virtual format, especially regarding how many programs students should apply to an interview at. So thank you so much for these numbers. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. In our next episode, we'll focus on everyone's favorite, the personal statement. Thank you again to Dr. Hughes for his insight and in helping to demystify the residency application process. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.